Public CEO Report is a podcast that provides insights about the public sector and public policy for the benefit of decision makers and leaders powering our communities. I'm your host, writer Todd Smith, and today we're joined by Andy Nickerson, president of HDL Companies, a revenue enhancement technology provider and local government consultant. Andy, welcome to the Public CEO Report. Thanks, writer. Great to have you here. Great to be here. So let's start out with the obvious. Who are you? What do you do? So uh, I am... uh president of HDL, as you uh, introduced me, and uh, I've worked for the company for about 28 years now. And the company has been around for about 38 years. So there's been uh, quite a a change in the organization over that period of time. We started out as a sales tech consulting firm and have branched off into uh, a number of different areas uh, where we serve local governments. And uh, most of those focus on the kind of the revenue side of the equation for uh, local government agencies, but also some other uh, consulting areas. And revenues, another way to translate that is typically taxes of some form, usually. Is that a fair statement? Yes, either taxes primarily, but also some fees as well. And uh, I, I know some history of HDL from back in the day. You guys were started in California, as I recall, but you've now expanded to, to, to multiple states across the nation. Is that correct? How big are you these days in terms of number of states covered? Yes. So we started here in California. We were founded by a former city manager that was trying to better understand his sales tax revenues. And some months he would get a check from the state that was higher. Other months it was lower. There was no backup uh, detail, and uh, and so when he uh, he left his role as being a city manager, he founded at that time it was called uh, Robert Hinderleiter and Associates, and then a few years later, uh, his first client at the city of Monterey Park, uh, where the city manager was Lloyd Delamas, ended up uh, retiring or leaving uh, his role as city manager and uh, and joining Bob in the business, and. Uh, so started out really just focused on, on sales tax services. And then today we operate in about 11 states uh, across the nation and um, serve about 550 cities, counties, and special districts. Wow. So one of the things I've learned in my work at Trepepe Smith, and I'm sure you have this experience too, is with all those different clients out there, you kind of get a front row seat into what's going on with local governments and what they're up to. And that must be a pretty diverse experience and insights that you get as a result of that position. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, uh, the, I think a great part about being in the, the space that we're in is, is that we get to, uh, We've got some really long-term relationships with public agencies, uh, particularly here in California, where we where we started, and uh, and we hire a lot of people that come out of local government. And they, um, one of the things they say about uh, wanting to come work for HDL is they, they're you know they're looking to retire from the the leadership roles that they've been in 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 local government, um, and the, the the challenges that they face in those roles, but but still want to stay connected. You know, to their colleagues and peers that they uh, they got to work with for uh, for decades in in many cases, and so uh, on our kind of senior team we have you know a number of uh, retired 
former city managers, finance directors, uh, economic development directors, revenue managers, and the like. And uh, and so, you know, local government is a big part of HDL's DNA. The um... How did you end up in local government? How did you find your way to HDL? I think you said 28 years ago. Yes, it's uh, it's a funny story. Uh, I was a student at Cal Poly Pomona. And in order for me to graduate, I was studying uh, finance. And in order for me to graduate, I was required to have an internship in my field of study. And so I was out on a double date one night with a buddy of mine and uh, and our dates and I was sharing this with uh, with the group that I, you know, was looking for an internship. And I really needed it, you know, to get one under or secured so that I could uh, I could graduate from my program. And my buddy's date said, uh, "Hey, you know, my dad owns a a company that does something related to finance. You know, like most kids, they don't really understand what their parents' uh, job is. And uh, if you send me your resume, I'll uh, I'll pass it along and and you know make sure that he gets it and." And maybe that'll be an opportunity for you. Well, it, it turns out that my buddy's date was Ingrid Delamas, uh, the oldest daughter of Lloyd Delamas. And uh, and so my resume did get passed along and uh, I was able to get an interview and, and secure an internship. And uh, and at the uh, conclusion of the internship and, uh, and my graduation, uh, the, the firm offered me a, a full-time position. And uh, so very unusual. I never anticipated being working for HDL for 28 years and uh, and the variety of roles that I've gotten to work in over that period of time. But it's been a, it was a company that, that that's culture, it's culture really fit what I was looking for and, uh, and got a lot of independence in the roles that I had over the years and opportunities to try new things and just has been a great uh, place to have a career. So I assume you're sending Ingrid a five percent cut uh, still these days for the uh, finder's fee and getting you to the to the organization. Yes, we've taken care of Ingrid very well. <laughs> um, well, so the nice thing is you ended up working in the local government space, not necessarily for local governments, but for for any one particular one at a time. And I say the same thing for myself and the work we do. But in some ways, you work for hundreds of local governments in California and really across the nation, right? The five hundred plus agencies that HDL has as clients. So uh, it's a different way to quote unquote work for local government, but it certainly lets you get your fingers into a lot of different pies and see a lot of a lot of different things about what's going on out there. Yeah, and it's you know, I, I feel strongly that local government is the best form of government out there. And when uh, when I talk to groups often or, or uh, young people that are in college about, you know, different career tra trajectories, uh, I, I often speak about the, the types of things that local government provides and and how essential they are for building, you know, healthy, vibrant communities. I mean, there's a route that I, I run a few times a week and, you know, I'm, I'm running on a public sidewalk. Uh, I'm going um, by parks and libraries and community shopping centers and a fire station and all these things that, that uh, are so essential to our lives and, and build vibrant communities. And, and local government is responsible for much of that. Yeah. 100% true. I mean, it is the it's the government we see around us every day, right? It's the and it makes a real impact on our daily lives, especially given how it's all about proximity and location. And you're kind of in the city you live in, you experience it every day. Um, 
which kind of actually leads me to a different, uh, kind of a broad open question here, but what is local government doing right from your estimation? Like, what do you see going right in local government? I realize as we're recording this, we're hopefully on the tail end of the global pandemic, uh, coronavirus that rocked uh, that rocked us through t 2020 and into early 2021. So it's a little bit of an awkward time to be asking that question, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that from your, your vantage point. Well, I think, you know, kind of following on to what we were just saying, the, the, the services or amenities that are part of our day-to-day -day lives are, uh, are much of what local governments provide and, and, create the quality of, of lives that uh, that we have in the in the communities that we live in so there's a lot going right about what they're doing uh, in those areas uh, uh, there's always you know challenges and whether it's a you're a private company or uh, or a public entity and and local governments certainly have their challenges as well uh, you know funding services is a big challenge you know uh, prioritizing uh, services is a is a big challenge, and uh, uh, the other one that that we see a lot of uh, really, and it, it seems to be increasingly a challenge for local government is uh, recruiting and hiring the the talented people that they need to be able to deliver those services, and particularly in the area of, of finance that uh, that we interact with so frequently. Yeah, I, I have noticed uh, recruiting uh, recruiting and finance in the kind of financial related, like chief budget officer positions or finance director or um, you know a deputy finance director position, very very difficult to do. It's um, local government has this perception of not being the sexiest space to be in, uh, despite the fact that Rob Lowe, in my opinion, is the most famous city manager in America as a result of Parks and Rec. Um, so. Uh, getting, you know, getting a lot of people to take an interest and talent in the space. And then frankly, it's a lot of on the job training. I mean, there's only so much finance director 101 you learn in uh, local in college, right? About how, how to do that kind of accounting, which is very specific. I mean, I think about my days at Claremont McKenna, there might've been one class in fund accounting and public finance um, out of the hundreds of classes that were offered over the course of the four years I was there. So it's, it's a, a lot of on-the-job training and a lot of kind of grooming people up through the ranks. And if you don't have a concerted effort to do that, it's very hard to have that next generation of people ready to go. Yeah, a couple of, of things related to that. Uh, one, I've, I've got a couple of clients that have kind of given up recruiting uh, more junior-level positions, accounting-level positions uh, in their cities because they're so difficult to, uh, to recruit anybody that has experience uh, in governmental accounting. And so they have changed uh, their strategy and they are hiring uh, very entry-level green uh, uh, accountants or, or folks right out of, of, of school and just training them up and developing their own uh, uh, teams. The other, uh, the other thing that we are, uh, our client services team often does because, as I said earlier, we've got a lot of former, you know, retired finance directors or and city managers that have decades of experience. One of the value adds that we bring to our clients is that as a brand new finance director moves into that role, or a brand new city manager moves into that role, or a an assistant city manager that is desiring to move into the the top seat. Uh, they'll often reach out to us and 
our team will will help coach them and develop them and um, and be a, a sounding board as they are um, you know facing challenges in their their new role. Uh, they can reach out and have somebody to run run those kind of run those issues by and, and get some advice. Well, and that's part of the advantage of that you've had in uh, being so effective at recruiting retired city managers to join the HDL team and be. I, you know, for, I guess to be use a brute force term, right? They're your field force of sorts, but they're doing a lot of client work from everything I can tell. Uh, and if it's not former city managers, it's, you know, former finance directors like a Tracy Vaselli, who, um, you know, is just wonderful personality and also super smart when it comes to finance. So I could see her easily being a huge resource uh, for public agencies. In fact, if I recall correctly, I think she was actually serving on an interim finance director basis uh, just before she joined your firm on a full-time basis too. So she's clearly uh, living that value of adding back to organizations and helping them fill some of those gaps out there in the world. Absolutely. And uh, and that team also will frequently sit on oral boards for our, our clients to help them recruit the next generation. Yeah. Um, you're... Uh, you know, I guess I, I'd be curious. So are, are you finding the same difficulties when you recruit for HDL? Are you going out hiring? I mean, obviously in your field force, you're looking for senior professionals who've retired out, right? And so there's a certain cohort out there that that one's obvious. But for your other positions, are you also having difficulty recruiting? Or do you find that you have an internal training structure or an infrastructure that's really helping you kind of teach people up the HDL way? Uh, in terms of some of the other roles, we too are having some challenges uh, recruiting uh, finance professionals, auditors, you know, these are more kind of junior, you know, kind of two to four year experience type roles. Mm -hmm. um, and I have concerns with, uh, with all of the federal stimulus and very likely seeing, you know, uh, the economy improving dramatically over the, the coming years that the labor market's going to be increasingly tight. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. It's, uh, it's been, a, I mean, and I'd like to transition a little bit to have some conversation about what you're seeing with city revenues in general, just because I think there's a lot of interest in that. And I know you guys have published some articles and papers on it. And again, you have a vantage point beyond just California too, but um, especially in California on what's going on with city finance revenues. Um, but having said that, I mean, clearly the unemployment rate, while it's higher than it was, and uh, there are, is a big chunk of the population that pulled out of the labor market, so it artificially reduces the unemployment rate uh, that's at least reported, um, the economy's growing very strong, and there's only more talk of more stimulus money. In fact, the economy's growing strong, and a lot of stimulus money hasn't actually shown up yet that's been voted on. So it's kind of it's it's kind of like there's there's a train that's already left the station, and we keep trying to put more carts on it. It'll be it's kind of a fascinating policy debate, really. Um, so we'll see. The uh, t talk to me a little bit about city city revenues and what what you guys have been observing. What happened through the pandemic? There were, I know there were a lot of cities that early on. So we're talking, you know, uh, May April of 2020, going into their June budget adoption. We're like, whoa, 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 whoa. We're pulling way back. They cut a bunch of things. They really went into hibernate mode, expecting to have to dip into reserves. Uh, did that manifest? What happened? Yeah, that was uh, a year ago, wasn't it? Uh, interesting period, and, and certainly we were uh, working at a very rapid pace. Uh, the the forecast. So so our team has for for years come together, and uh, we we do it once a quarter, and we subscribe to about ninety different trade publications and analyst reports, 
uh, for various uh, industry sectors that we track for uh, sales tax. And so we have seven different primary industry sectors that we track. And we come together at once a quarter to, um, to build our consensus forecast. And this is a, a statewide forecast on where we think that those industries are trending positively, negatively, how much, why, all of that kind of stuff. So we use that statewide forecast to inform the, the revenue forecast that we do for each of our public agencies. And we adjust the statewide forecast based on the particular economic tax base that the, uh, the city or county uh, has. And, and then we're also making individual business adjustments for uh, missing this is on a taxpayer level, missing payments, uh, audit adjustments, things like that. And then we, we prepare revenue forecasts for our clients, uh, one to five year revenue forecasts. And we typically do that twice a year. Well, when COVID hit, um, as you pointed out, we were in uh, budget season and some cities had, had already adopted or were close to adopting their budgets. And we started uh, revising our forecasts for all of our clients. And over the a period of about six or eight weeks, in some cases, we were updating forecasts weekly for those, mm -hmm. those clients because things were changing so rapidly, right? Shelter in place orders were changing, essential businesses uh, were, were changing, and uh, it was just a rapidly changing environment. So uh, updating forecasts. And then the interesting thing about this crisis compared to the housing crisis was when we went into the housing crisis, we were providing our clients with, with revenue forecasts that were, were pretty grim. And our, the feedback we got from our clients was, no, it's not gonna be this bad. Um, and so they felt we were being overly pessimistic. The opposite happened when the pandemic hit. We were going out with some very dire forecasts in our, our sales tax forecasts, and our clients were telling us, many of our clients were telling us, not, you didn't cut deep enough. We think mm -hmm. it's going to be worse than this. <laughs> um, so that uh, you know, second quarter of last year was very challenging in, in trying to determine exactly the uh, severity and then length of the, uh, the revenue impacts uh, due to the pandemic. So I sense that in general, you were forecasting pretty substantial fall off. Cities started planning for an even more substantial fall off. Um, and as the pandemic unfolded, I, you know, it didn't hit all cities equally, right? So my, my sense is, and I'd love to get your color commentary on this, but I'll, I'll lead you into it from my, pers my layman's perspective. Cities that are pretty sales tax driven or had a lot of industrial goods or Lowe's and Home Depot's and kind of, uh, things that might be oriented around home improvement, they actually did okay, in some ways beating some forecasts, I suspect. Um, but if you were a city that has a lot of tourism and TOT, like you're in tough shape because no great surprise, tourism just fell through the floor. Um, is that an accurate picture or what am I missing in that? And what are some of the kind of finer nuances that HDL was able to observe? Yeah, I think that's a pretty accurate uh, overview. There are many of our clients that have um, you know, uh, auto dealers, they've got a business to business tax base, some general retail and, and they weathered, I mean, let me back up the second quarter of, of last year was terrible for almost everybody. Fair enough. Train wreck for everyone. 
train wreck, but then fairly quick recovery, kind of a V-shaped recovery for many cities in the state where their sales tax bases recovered pretty well. Hotels, totally different story uh, for the most part. Uh, certain uh, geographies in the state uh, recovered fairly well with uh, TOT revenue as well. Uh, I'll tell you a story about uh, one of our clients. The city of San Francisco um, has a the type of tax base that would be most impacted by a pandemic and what we went through um, uh, in the middle of last year. Um, I, the city has a, an annual meeting and it happens to be on uh, Valentine's Day every year. And the controller's office brings together experts from a, a number of different areas, uh, travel and tourism, the, uh, the hotel industry, the airport authority, uh, commercial real estate, uh, apartment owners, they, uh, they bring in sales tax uh, experts, property tax, you know, all, every revenue stream and sit around a large conference room table and uh, the, the controller presents their forecast and they're looking for those industry experts to basically punch holes in their forecast and tell them why they're wrong about their, their, their predictions. And last year uh, I attended that meeting and the picture could almost not be rosier in any of those areas. Tourism was wonderful. Uh, hotel occupancy rates were at all-time highs. Room rates were at all-time highs. Sales tax revenue was pouring in. Uh, property values were up and property tax revenues were pouring in. And literally within 30 days of that meeting, the, the wheels were falling off the bus because right. every one of those revenue streams had plummeted. And so for, for cities like San Francisco or Anaheim or others that are, you know, uh, tourism based, uh, rely on sports teams, conventions and the like, uh, the impact was, was really severe. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, and where kind of, where are you seeing those things level off now or what do you, what's your team looking at when you look at a three to five years out? We, uh, so one of the, interesting things over the course of this last year that we did not expect was the strong demand for new automobiles. Mm. Um, and it's, it's still, it's still there today in part because there are some challenges with manufacturing and getting, uh, getting chips for automobiles, but we're seeing some dealers being able to charge, five to $20,000 above uh, sticker price for certain uh, models that are in high demand. That certainly was not anticipated. You know, when everybody's staying at home, what do you need a new car for? Uh, <laughs> we saw similar things with, um, in cities like Beverly Hills with high-end uh, clothing uh, retailers, uh, very strong sales, uh, jewelry, uh, so the, the kind of idea is if you can't go out and do things, uh, you want to buy things to treat yourself uh, while you're sitting at home. And so that was kind of an interesting trend that we saw. Um, in terms of the outlook, I think there's a tremendous demand for travel and tourism. People want to safely go back out and, uh, and enjoy their lives. I think we'll see strong demand at, uh, at restaurants. Um, I was talking to uh, a friend of mine last weekend who's trying to plan a trip to 
Hawaii and uh, he's getting rental car uh, rates for a week of rental car that are in the $1,500 to $3,000 range. Oof. There's so much demand. Uh, Just walk, the, buddy. Just walk. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and that was one of the, the ideas that he came up with was maybe we'll just Uber while we're there because the rental car is so expensive. And uh, in, in part, that's because the, the rental car agencies sold off, you know, big chunks of their fleet to try to, you know, manage their cash flow situation over mm. the last year. And there's the shortage of new vehicles for them to go out and purchase now. Yeah, no, that's true. And uh, I'm not sure what the operating status is of Hertz, but obviously Hertz and its two other brands are, you know, blowing up as well, given the bankruptcy. Right. Uh, well, I will just admit I am one of those people who went out and bought a new car during the pandemic. So I have a Tesla sitting in the in the driveway these days that wasn't there before. Um, so we contributed to that. Uh, and I will also admit that I was uh, at a BMW dealership recently, just liking to poke around. And the new M3 is on the lot there. And, and Crevier BMW had it at $15,000 over MSRP as a premium. So Yes, I can see there are definitely certain cars that people are demanding their extra pre pricing premium on. And I'm sure that my uh, technical producer who's watching us talk right now is cringing because he's a BMW fan like I am. <laughs> well, and yeah. we're seeing we're seeing that on on uh, home sales as well. I have a neighbor who's a realtor and uh, they're pricing homes at the kind of the upper end of the, the market. And he's still consistently getting forty to eighty thousand dollars over that price, usually selling the property within 48 hours of a listing. And I have uh, uh, one person that told me that he and his wife paid 200,000 over asking price. Yes, it's, uh, you know, some of that I wonder how much of that, I think there's a lot of factors there, right? I think we saw a lot of exodus from the cities into suburbia. So it wasn't, um, it's like, that's been one of the bigger migration stories in California, not necessarily net migration out of California to Texas, although that's part of it too. And our recent congressional loss of our congressional district has partly reflected that reality. But just like people didn't leave San Francisco and go to Truckee, they left San Francisco and went to the East Bay or they went to Cupertino or they went down to Morgan Hill or they went up to Napa. Um, so you had, you know, you definitely saw some, I think, price reductions on, on rental rates in San Francisco and higher vacancy. Uh, but they didn't, you know, they were basically trying to get a little piece of heaven with maybe a pool or at least a backyard where they could be outside, enjoy some space and have a little bit of breathing room and not be walking on a three foot wide sidewalk um, next to their neighbors crowded, crowded in space. So mm -hmm. that had a huge impact, I think, on absorbing the suburban real estate market. And we're certainly seeing that here. You and I both are Orange County guys. So we're seeing that here in Orange County. My wife and I have been scouring real estate more out of curiosity than anything else. But I totally agree. It's. Uh, it's a pretty pretty crazy market. In fact, the Wall Street Journal just did a story on hot housing markets. The number one hot housing market in America year over year was Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, so northern Idaho, which has been popular for a while now, but particularly was trendy because, A, um, they had less restrictive COVID uh, requirements up there. So you had a lot of people kind of going into that area to live free, so to speak. Um, and it's just a great place to retire, so that it had that going for it. And it's super safe, and there was a lot of response to uh, kind of increased crime in highly urban areas that's been going on for the last couple of years as a trend. Uh, so it's, you know, it's had a real Im impact. I think the the median home price that they said in the greater Coeur d'Alene area had gone up 47% year over year, which is in real estate is just crazy. I mean, anyways.
people don't want to hear me talk. They want to hear you talk, Andy. I'll stop. I'll get off my, my soapbox. But it's kind of fascinating to just see that unfold. Um, any other kind of uh, you think changes in long-term consumer consumer patterns uh, that that you see shaping up? And we talked a little bit about increased demand, pent-up demand for re um, restaurant experiences and travel. Uh, it sounds to me like we're probably bringing forward a lot of car purchases and to some degree, uh, or maybe it's just supply constraints, but I'm wondering if there'll be a dearth of, of new car purchases like two years out because there will be a saturated market of everybody bogged down by their new M3s that they went out and paid $15,000 over a sticker for. I, I think we'll, we'll see. I mean, the, the, the new automobile trends have been pretty solid for, for quite, quite a while. Um, I, I think that much of the, the current kind of higher prices are the result of uh, limita limitations on supply. Um, and there's been a lot of, of stimulus. And so consumers uh, have more discretionary income. Mm -hmm. They've had, you know, savings rates have been high because they haven't been able to go out and do anything. So I think with that higher discretionary income, we'll see some uh, that, that support the, the new car sales for, for a while. Um, the other things that, that uh, you know, we're seeing in terms of consumer trends, we saw, you know, we've seen for many years this trend towards purchasing uh, more goods online. Mm, yeah. Uh, that, that trend certainly accelerated over the last year. Um, and then kind of combined with that, and, and one thing that really helped local governments in California uh, and a few other states, but not all, was the, the Wayfair decision, um, Wayfair uh, versus South Dakota, where the Supreme Court uh, created or kind of sided on the side of, of states and this idea of economic nexus. So if a uh, an online retailer was selling goods into a state and they had no physical presence, that this economic nexus would require them to collect and remit that state's sales tax. And so uh, that decision, the timing of that decision with, in terms of with the pandemic uh, was very fortunate for uh, local governments in California because the, uh, the state then followed that decision with a bill, uh, AB 147, that the governor signed and went into effect in 2019. And it went into effect in, in two different phases. The, the first, which was in April of 2019, required out-of-state sellers, I think the threshold was selling half a million dollars or more into the state, would be required to collect that, that state sales tax. The second piece of that uh, was implemented in October of that year. And that was related to marketplace facilitators like uh, Walmart and Amazon and others that, um, that other businesses were selling goods through their platforms into the state. And so sales tax collections in, uh, in well, the, the, those sales taxes are allocated in California through this pooling system. And so if the goods are shipped into Orange County, where we live, uh, that's where the tax is allocated. And then the tax is shared with every city and the county on a pro rata basis. And so in the second quarter of 20, yeah, second quarter of uh, 2020, uh, the revenues in the, in the county pools went up 29%. Mm. And in uh, the third quarter of 2020, they went up 
34%. So just a huge amount of new revenue coming into the state at a time when the pandemic was hitting and we were seeing declining revenues you know, from brick and mortar retailers and you know, restaurants and the like. I was going to thank you for bringing up the Wayfair decision because I was going to ask to dive into that a little bit. So you got you got there before I could. But it sounds like, to your point, that really helped that change that really swept the nation for the most part. Um, and as you noted, affected some states positively and many states positively from a revenue basis for them and others a couple negatively, perhaps uh, really through it, it created a lot more sales tax revenue that otherwise it never would have been paid to the state, right? So now yep. you're a shipper, you you only have a location in Utah and you're shipping into California and now you're paying that sales tax that you might not have been collecting before and having to remunerate it to the state and it goes through the process you're you're noting. And then I'm assuming HDL on your sales and use tax audit side helps make sure that that stuff is being accurately um, allocated. Is that part of the scope of work you guys involved with or is that a pretty straightforward formula for the state? Uh, it's fairly straightforward, um, but it is a, uh, a growing area of interest. Um, there, are, there are some retailers like Amazon in California that have set up a very unique business structure. And uh, I won't bore you with all the details, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's causing the tax to be allocated in a unique way. And so there's, uh, there's likely going to, we'll likely see some changes with the way that uh, Sales tax, at least in California, for online retailers is uh, is remitted to public agencies. Okay, that sounds like a good cocktail talk for the conversation when we can finally get back together in person and uh, and confer in proper conference attire and uh, in in the good conference ways that we do in local government. Yeah. Um. All right. What uh, I guess one other question I'll just ask here. So what if cities are in dire kind of financial position during the pandemic uh, for those that are, what are some of the potential solutions cities could use to implement to start their recovery? Right. So if you're one of those cities, I mean, obviously, we know that the shackles are coming off the economy to some extent and freedom starting to open up again. But there are still cities who are going to be suffering from the gut punch of having had to dip in their reserves or um, had to you know, spend huge. Uh, obviously, I think we're going to see some federal money, perhaps that's going to show up for some cities. But what else are you seeing out there that cities could consider doing to try to find additional revenues that maybe are just not on their radar screen right now? Well, as you know, in in California, that we have some pretty significant limitations on on raising revenues, raising taxes, you know, for local government. But uh, but some of the things that uh, that are available. Uh, one, you, you mentioned the federal stimulus. This is a incredible uh, one-time opportunity to uh, to really help uh, recover from the effects of the pandemic. And we're talking with clients about uh, things like um, small business assistance programs and you know helping our clients develop uh, programs for those businesses to be able to submit applications, you know identify what the vetting criteria is to approve or deny those and then get funding back to them quickly. Uh, similar uh, to that would be um, would be housing assistance, you know, to folks that have been had some just some significant negative in economic impacts uh, related to uh, the pandemic, and uh, help support them and and uh, and uh, help them pay their rent. And then uh, some other areas would be things like uh, in California, we do have uh, sales. It's, we call it add-on sales tax or it's uh, district tax or transactions and use tax. Those are uh, sales taxes that 
communities can put before voters. And uh, they seem to be being approved at uh, pretty high rates as long as communities can communicate, you know, that the, the compelling need for additional revenue. Uh, parcel taxes are also a possibility. Uh, there are some uh, cities in, in California that have implemented uh, permits for adult use, uh, either medical, medicinal or uh, recreational cannabis, and uh, those can be uh, revenue generators. We we advise our clients not to permit them just for revenue, but to really look at uh, at the issue more broadly, and uh, and go down that path if it makes sense for for their communities. Um, so those are some of the the areas. Oh, and I guess the primary one, which is really the one of the core parts of our business, is you know making sure that you're receiving all of the revenue that you're already entitled to receive. Right. We, uh, we do ongoing sales tax uh, uh, discovery and auditing for, for our clients, um, TOT, you know, hotel tax auditing, um, business tax auditing, and you know, really any local uh, government um, tax revenue stream. There are, uh, we have programs to uh, administer, audit, or discover additional revenue. And, and so for, you know, I was talking to one of the guys in our business tax group recently, and, and they've determined that for the, the clients that we're um, providing business tax auditing and discovery services for, that there's often businesses that are operating in our clients' communities that they're just simply not aware of. They're flying under the radar. Um, they may be contractors or, or companies that are leasing equipment in the community that should have a business license and pay a business tax, but, but aren't. And we can get about a 10% lift of, uh, of revenue if we implement one of those discovery and, and audit programs. So certainly something we advise our clients is before you go out to your uh, voters and ask for additional taxes to make sure you're collecting all that you're due uh, through the, the existing programs. Yeah, and I suppose one point that gets made there too is uh, if somebody's managing to intentionally avoid paying their taxes, they're you know they're advantaged in the free market, right? So if you have the the Johnny Do Good who's trying to do the right thing and pay his taxes and be an active participant in local government, and then you have Johnny Do Wrong over here who wants to fly under the radar screen and uh, not you know, be, be on equal footing, like that's not really a great thing, right? So the, among, among finding the revenue, you also equalize that, that playing field for the two parties to compete more, to properly compete with each other on, on the same playing field is I guess the way I would put that. Yeah. Um, you talked a lot about, uh, or you mentioned some of the areas around helping government administer new programs. Uh, and then you also talked about some of your business licensing services in the course of your, your audit process. So, uh, managing business licensing has kind of been a newer service area, I, I sense, for you guys. And when I say this, I mean, like, people can go on, I need to get a business license in the city of X. I go through a portal, and that portal, while it might be branded up, the city is ultimately an HDL technology portal. Am I accurately describing some of the, some of that technology you guys provide? Yes, but I'll, I'll uh, go back a little bit. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a, the full administration piece, I would say, is a, a relatively new service for us, last you know, seven or eight years. But we've been providing business license software to cities and counties for 25 years. Okay. So, so we, we really developed uh, 
many years ago, a best of breed business license uh, software. And, and that was licensed to our, our clients in a traditional software license kind of format. Um, then about eight years ago, seven, eight years ago, we had a client that came to us and said, hey, you know, could you just administer this for us? And so we, uh, we started developing a program to, to do that. And for the first several years, it was primarily uh, very small cities that we were providing that service for. And it's a full outsource solution where uh, we have an office in Fresno that um, a, a big part of that office is a call center operation. And so we're using our own business license software and uh, we set up a, a special telephone number so that any customer service inquiries get routed to the Fresno office. And our team there answers the phone just as if they were the city's business license uh, staff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we help uh, taxpayers um, fill out a license, uh, pay their fees, and then we uh, we submit the license to the uh, the taxpayer, uh, retain a fee, and and remit the balance back to the public agency. So uh, so that's that's a neat service and uh, provides a you know web portal so the taxpayer can go online and do it themselves. They can you know make make their payment online and and all of that. Uh, and and then that's expanded now into other you know, tax areas that, that we, we support, including hotel taxes, cannabis taxes, uh, utility users taxes, and in some other states, things like, well, in some states, even sales taxes, uh, local uh, uh, agencies collect their own sales taxes, soda taxes, alcohol beverage taxes, tobacco taxes, uh, there's all kinds of, of, of variants. So it seems to me, and I I think about this in the context of COVID, and uh, you and I have had some prior conversations about how you had to transform your business to respond to the COVID market. I'd like to, I'd like to shift over to a little bit of conversation just about that as like a a leader of an organization dealing with the COVID response, transforming your organization to be responsive, partly because there's a bunch of our public sector agency friends and leaders out there who will watch this program. They'll be interested to know how another uh, leader in a space uh, with multiple offices, frankly, I had to deal with that. But before I get there, um, this in in the private sector and now certainly in the public sector too, there's this idea of kind of operational transformation and flexibility and being able to be nimble. And the pandemic really forced that that crux of that need on a lot of organizations, especially public agencies, who maybe had been stuck in a very paper-driven process, and all of a sudden there was nobody at the office to process paper anymore. So how do you handle business licensing, for example? So I'm just curious how you saw the impact of the pandemic maybe transform the public sector's perception of becoming more nimble and the idea of how shifting, moving things online um, and having virtual experiences like a virtual business license office actually works to their advantage and creates resiliency for the organization or maybe frees them up to be able to focus on other service areas that are higher yield to their community? Well, there's a, there was a lot in that question, right? Yeah, around. sorry, I know, I was loaded, <laughs> but. <laughs> uh, so I'll start with 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 HDL's experience uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, I And I'll try to keep this story brief, but but my last business trip was March 5th of last year. And uh, I was in the Sacramento area, and my last meeting of that day, that trip, was with Graham Kanaz, who's the executive director of the California State Association of Counties. And after we kind of went through our agenda, I I knew that Graham uh, had a public health background. And so 
my biggest concern on March 5th of last year was um, who makes the decision to shut down public schools and that's going to have a big impact on our employees because so many of them have elementary age kids. Mm-hmm. And so I asked Graham that question and he educated me about public health officers, which we, we all know about now. Yeah, they're now and, our uh, best friends. We know them well. <laughs> and flying home that night, I was scared to death uh, because I knew that these people would be under tremendous pressure to shut schools down and, and, and do so quickly. And so met with our executive team the following day and, uh, and we started putting a plan together because at the time on March 5th, only about 15% of HDL's workforce had the equipment and capability to work remotely. And we have about 190 employees. And so we needed to put together a plan very quickly, um, have some certainty that, that it would uh, uh, work and, uh, and execute. And so we brought in our IT folks. Uh, they uh, began procuring some laptops, uh, including some Chromebooks, and testing them in a remote environment on our servers. And fortunately, we were able to, uh, to utilize very low-cost Chromebooks, and we started procuring them as quickly as we could. And uh, some of those orders uh, were, were ended up being canceled, you know, uh, days later. And, and um, towards the end of... Uh, over this 10-day period where we transitioned to remote work, uh, our IT folks were running around Orange County to every Best Buy they could uh, uh, find and buying onesie twosie laptops, you know, and getting them set up. And so every day we'd get some, you know, let's say half a dozen laptops would show up. They would get them set up. They would bring in some staff, train them how to use it, and we'd send them home. Mm-hmm. And uh, and by the end of 10 days, we uh, we were all working from home. And the fortunate conversation with Graham that it happened on the 5th, because if if we had waited another week or so, you know, it would have uh, been very difficult to procure all the equipment that we needed uh, because everybody else was doing the same thing. That's right. Point, you know, um, so that's really how how um, how HDL transitioned. And I think the I would say that our, the transition worked pretty seamlessly for us. And I really credit our people uh, for that successful transition and the fact that we had spent the last, you know, four or five years intentionally focusing on building uh, high trust teams uh, throughout the organization. So when those high trust teams transitioned to this virtual working environment, um, they just continued to collaborate very well together, and uh, and it, it worked pretty seamlessly for us. Uh, I, I would say our biggest accomplishment of last year. Um, indeed, and I think one, uh, I would agree with that point. First of all, it is flawless timing that you guys started acquiring that hardware then. It became very hard to acquire hardware, uh, and as you know, our firm was already virtual, so we were in the enviable position not having to scramble. Um, uh, but I still was out trying to buy like really nice high-end uh, cameras, um, external cameras and whatnot. And, you know, they were, they were up for sale, but you had to pay 50% extra to get them. Right. And uh, right. only now am I starting to see those supplies come back online. The, um, but I think what's really interesting too, an important point you raise, and when I constantly speak to my city manager clients and friends about in the community at large is uh, you had built kind of teams that trusted each other, right? Which is a culture thing. And that takes time to build. That you're not gonna do in 10 days, right? That takes a lot longer. 
Um, so you had that groundwork already. And then, and fundamentally, the point is, it's not just about technology. It's about technology combined with culture and team that really enables that kind of environment and that nimbleness and shift that you experienced. Um, and in my mind, speaks really to how significant culture is a, as a component of building successful organizations in this very dynamic environment we're in right now, particularly if it remains a hybrid work from home, come to the office environment. It's going to be very, very interesting challenge for public agencies in particular to focus on culture building as a core component of their uh, skill sets and assets they have as an organization. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The other the other thing that I think we, and, and we made a lot of mistakes last year, just like everyone else, but uh, but one thing that we did well at the beginning of the pandemic was we implemented a much higher cadence of communications. And uh, that included things like uh, our senior team, which is about 15 or so uh, senior leaders. We, we started, we, we, typical cadence is we meet twice a month. Uh, we switched to twice weekly meetings mm -hmm. um, and just constantly updating How's your team doing? What are the challenges? What can we do to help? Um, those were very, very helpful. We encourage those leaders to increase the cadence of, of meetings with their teams as well. You know, uh, as you, I'm sure people on your team, you know, experienced some of this. There was a lot of anxiety, you know, on our from our staff. What's going to happen to the company? What's going to happen to my job? You yeah. know, are we going to survive this? Am I going to uh, get laid off? Am I going to have a cut in pay? You know, all of those kinds of questions. And so we wanted to diminish that anxiety as much as we possibly could. And uh, and then our executive team was planning multiple scenarios for how this might play out and what kind of cuts we would have to make uh, under each scenario. And unfortunately, uh, um, the you know the the worst did not come into play for us uh, like it did for some some companies out there. Um, the other thing that, that uh, we did is we, uh, we launched an internal company newsletter called, uh, we called it HDL Connection. And it was to be able to share information uh, broadly. And, and that uh, initially started being published uh, twice a week as well. Uh, we, we are now doing that twice a month as things have settled down a bit. But it was a way to communicate out to our, our staff, hey, you know, here's some contracts that, that were signed. Uh, mm -hmm. This week, here's some you know good feedback we got from uh, clients this week. Uh, we we put a focus on our core values, and we would uh, we would go out and we'd find articles or video content that supported our core core values, and really kind of reemphasize those to our teams. You know, this is who we were prior to the pandemic, and this is who we still are in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, and uh, and then there were some just fun things that uh, that would be included in there to try to just help people have some some fun and levity and and uh, humor and uh, in the midst of all the bad news that we were getting last year yeah yeah I yeah I agree with that point 100 I mean I think consistent core communications particularly when you don't have the kind of organic happenstance communications that happens with physical proximity right if you're all spread asunder, then you have to compensate, overcompensate perhaps by intentionally communicating in organized meetings or instant messaging chats and picking up the phone and calling people and hearing actual voices to compensate for that environment. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious now, uh, again, you lead an organization, 190 employees, multiple offices. Um, what is your plan for return to work if you, if you have that plan figured out yet and if you're willing to share today? 
And so I shouldn't say are, return to work. That's not fair. Everybody's been working this whole time. So <laughs> right. I should say return to office is what I should right. say. So my apologies to your team. They're all working. I'm confident. <laughs> uh, they are. I, I think they're working harder than ever. Uh, but uh, the uh, return to office is uh, we are moving towards a hybrid uh, working environment post-pandemic or even when it's you know, safe to come back uh, into an office. And we are in the process of developing those plans. We have talked to all of our business unit leaders to get feedback from them about how their teams work, uh, what they think would be uh, ideal for their teams. And I would say that that, that varies dramatically from some of our uh, development teams that will be primarily working from home uh, on an uh, ongoing basis, probably coming into an office once every couple of weeks for team meetings. And then other parts of our uh, service lines, like, uh, like our call center operation in, in Fresno, uh, much greater need for those teams to, to be working in an office. And, uh, and so it's, it's, uh, it's all over that spectrum. But, you know, one thing that, uh, and I think, and the other part of, of more of a hybrid work environment, we want to maintain our competitiveness in terms of recruiting talent out there. I mean, I, I view my, my role as a president and CEO, one of my, I would say the top kind of four things that I do uh, one of them is is acquiring the best talent and fielding the best team that we can possibly field. And so we want to make sure that we continue to be very competitive in, in recruiting. Yeah, and I would say employee expectations have changed significantly on that front, right? So uh, if, if there's a, unless there's a really good logical reason why I have to come to the office every day, good talent is going to want the option to be able to work from home or work on a you know, go to the mountains and spend a week in the mountains working and delivering, uh, but they're going to expect that flexibility. And um, I've always seen that as a competitive advantage for our firm, given our pure remote environment, that our ability to bring on talent wherever they are and give them the flexibility to go spend a month in Utah or go go spend three weeks up in the central coast of California is a huge advantage that we're able to offer to the team and the awesome yeah. talent that gets to join our firm here at Trippepi Smith. Yeah, in the, is there, in the midst of the pandemic, we hired a developer who was living in Las Vegas, and he was planning to move to uh, to Southern California to come work for us. And after we had hired him, he uh, he kind of reached out and said, "Hey, what's it going to look like for HDL going forward?" And uh, so we shared with him that yeah, we're we're moving toward this hybrid environment. And he said, "Well, I'm thinking about moving to Texas. Would that be okay with you?" <laughs> we said, "Okay." Yeehaw, <laughs> make it happen. Uh, Andy, is there, uh, you know, you're a man of many talents with a big a big organization, lots of fingers, any pots, anything else you wanna highlight or chat about today before we bring it to a close? You know, I, I, the one one thing that's, uh, I think is going to be really interesting to see in the, the local government space that we work in is how local governments work uh, post pandemic. And I, I think we're gonna see a lot, of, um, a lot of change there as well. I know uh, a recent conversation I had with a, a city manager in the Northern part of the state, he had a, a customer service uh, staff member who you know, had been working from home and uh, worked for the city for many years. And uh, about six months ago, her husband uh, was transferred by his company to Washington state. And she approached her city manager and said, "Hey." 
would it be okay if I continue to work for the city, but, but work from Washington? And he said, absolutely. And, uh, you know, a uh, year and a half ago, the answer probably would have been no. Right. <laughs> and so really uh, interested to see how local governments uh, uh, transition their organizations post-pandemic and how city council meetings will operate, how, you know, new ways that they'll engage uh, members of their communities uh, on various issues. Uh, that's going to be exciting to see, uh, hopefully, some some change there. Yep. I agree. It's going to be fascinating to watch the change happen. And from your vantage point at HDL, you're going to have a front row seat to watch it unfold and and uh, see, the, see the space that you and I spend so much time in change and transform in front of your very eyes. Well, uh, thank you, Andy. Thanks for joining the team. And that's today's report. My thanks to Andy for joining us. And from the whole public uh, CEO team and myself, writer Todd Smith, thank you for your time today. Thanks, Ryder. We hope you learned something new and inspiring that'll help you in your public service. Remember, Public CEO has a daily newsletter that is free to those who sign up at publicceo.com. If you have feedback, questions, or guest suggestions for Public CEO Report, please email alex at publicceo.com.